you go on the National Institutes of Health website here, which is the big science institution here funded by the government, U.S. government, there's absolutely nothing about why we have crooked teeth. They say it's caused by genetics or it's by tumors, but, but nothing about this hidden story of how those crooked teeth that 90% of the population have affect our breathing and how our breathing affects everything. So it was this story that was hidden so many layers deep, took me a while to get to. I'm joined by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. That's good to hear. We're also joined with a returning guest, author of Deep, Free Diving, Renegade Science, and What Ocean Tells Us About Ourselves. But this time, we'll be talking about his brand new book. We're joined with James Nestor, the author of Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art. Welcome, James. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. It's great to be here again. I, I think it's even stranger this time because as a consequence of the new book, I decided to go in and play with Wim Hof breathing again. So it's all your fault. Sorry, you're heating yourself <laughs> up there, getting sweaty and anxious. It's no, good for no, you no, in the long run, you know. It was really entertaining because uh, I'm a fairly serious Ashtanga yoga person. So I, I'm used to breathing funny already. But I started doing Wim Hof again at the end when I read your book and managed to make myself fall over out of Lotus about three times in a week from getting to sort of such a point of so much oxygen and then so little from holding my breath. I just kind of went beep and fell sideways. Well, hopefully you were, you were hot while doing it. The oh, power of inner heat Tumo will, will do that to you. Yes. You had yoga plus Wim Hof and it's a very strange world. <laughs> exactly. Now this was a fascinating thing to read your new book and go, hang on, you're someone who's free dived and in your free dive book, you talk so much about the problem that you had dealing with sinus pain of regulating pressure. And here you are in your new book telling us that we've basically forgotten how to breathe properly. And a big part of the problem is that our jaw and sinuses have actually devolved and that you yourself realized your sinuses were causing you all sorts of problems. Yeah. So it's not just my affliction. Luckily, you know, misery loves company. So the vast majority of the population is suffering from the same thing because of the same reasons. And this was something when I stumbled upon it, I was absolutely shocked about. I thought I had a pretty good idea of who I was going to talk to when I was researching this book, what I was going to write about. And then it just took after about six months into it, this huge left turn to this very strange world of biological anthropological research. And that's where I suddenly realized, aha, this is why my teeth are crooked. This is why my breathing's been very poor for a long time. And this is why so many of us have so many chronic problems. I've yeah, been that... feeling really incredibly self-conscious about my side profile of my face now, uh, to the point now where I'm not, I'm not even sure that my fiance and I should procreate because we both have this recessed jaw. I'm not sure it'd be good for the human species. <laughs> so thank you for that affliction. <laughs> Tim, just make any little human chew more. It'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> well, try, try researching a book on breathing for three years and see how neurotic you get about all this stuff. So I'm with you, man. <laughs> If you're having a problem with that, yeah, I had the same problem. But what's interesting to me is, is to know that this isn't just 
this random genetic thing. If you go on the National Institutes of Health website here, which is, you know, the big science institution here funded by the government, U.S. government, there's absolutely nothing about why we have crooked teeth. They say it's caused by genetics or it's by tumors, but, but nothing about this hidden story of how those crooked teeth that 90% of the population have affect our breathing and how our breathing affects everything. So it was this story that was hidden so many layers deep, took me a while to get to, but once I did, I thought, man, this is interesting. <laughs> so essentially the short bit, because we processed food, we chewed less by chewing less. We didn't signal for our jaws to keep growing because our jaws didn't keep growing. Our jaws got narrower, which then changes the shape of our palate and makes our sinuses smaller. That's sort of the essential pattern. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I looked at a lot of ancient skulls. This is my day job. Got very weird here. So if, if even if you go online and look at an ancient skull 10,000 years ago, there's a very good chance it's going to have perfectly straight teeth. 100,000 years ago, perfectly straight teeth. Even 1,000 years ago, perfectly straight teeth. And it's also going to have these huge nasal apertures. Those are the two holes in the back of the throat that connect the nose to, to the throat. And it's going to have this huge jaw. And so by having this large jaw, teeth, when they grow in, will grow in naturally straight. The teeth don't want to grow in crooked. They want to grow in straight, but they need room to do that. And if your jaw gets too small, if it gets too stunted, those teeth are going to grow in crooked, which is why we have to extract teeth now, which is why we have to take our wisdom teeth out, which is why so many of us have, have to be in braces and headgear and all that, because our jaws have grown so small and Almost all of that is due to this highly processed diet. But it turns out that within a single generation, about 50% of a population will have some malocclusion, some shrinking of that jaw. But then it starts to become a heritable trait. And that's what I think is so interesting as well. And they believe that that's due to once you have a smaller jaw, you start having breathing problems. And if you're pregnant and you have breathing problems, if you suffer from sleep apnea, you're not getting enough oxygen. So that lack of oxygen is going to not allow your fetus to develop in all the right ways. So it's this really downward spiral once your breathing starts getting stunted, all because of that jaw. And another last thing is, if you have clean hands, don't do this with dirty hands, anybody, but you can take your thumb and put it on the roof of your mouth. Now, an ancient skull would have a flat upper palate, but the vast majority of us, there's this huge indentation up there. That indentation extends into the sinuses and helps to block them. So I definitely have this, and most people I know have this, but our ancestors, ancient ancestors, did not. So it just, just goes to show, we think that, Evolution is the straight line of progress forward, but it's really not. We've taken some severe turns and in many ways our breathing is so much worse than it was thousands of years ago. It's really interesting as I was listening to you read the audiobook version when you describe going to the catacombs in Paris and being shown piles of skulls from different periods in history. So you can physically go and go, here are skulls from 200 years ago. Yeah. Here are skulls from 300 years ago. Here are skulls from 100 years ago. And it's just like, 
wow, that would have been freaky, but what a wonderful way to confirm the strange science. In Paris, you know, you're talking about industrialized city, right? That has been industrialized for a long time. So the people in Paris for the past 400 years have been eating processed, a lot of bread, soft processed foods. And so they would take a hit earlier than a hunter-gatherer tribe, right? That is eating this really hard food. They found that vitamin mineral deficiencies do play a, a part in bone growth for sure, but most of it is caused by lack of chewing. Our ancestors used to chew for about four hours a day, every day, just grinding away. And if you're chewing that much, you're developing those muscles and that skeletature. Um, that's what signals the stem cell growth. So when you're not chewing, and none of us are really chewing today, um, even you know infants are put on formula, then they're put on soft foods, then they're put on all the crap that most of us grew up eating, canned vegetables and oatmeal and all that. Uh, you're not working out your mouth. And so that is, there are direct correlations between the amount of chewing and breathing problems, including snoring and sleep apnea and all the rest. This is what's so interesting you know, in the book where you make the point that so many people breathe through their mouth. Now, I must be a really weird human. I don't know if I got told to do this or told if I didn't, but I've always breathed through my nose. Well, you're one step ahead of, of a lot yeah, of the population. I, I was going to say, I wonder, I don't even know how or why I did. But when I started listening to your description in the book of you and was it Anders Olsen? That's right. Yes. Yeah. You and Yanders Olsen doing the 10 day trial of having plugs in your nose to make you breathe through your, your mouth for 10 days and watching your health and well being deteriorate over 10 days. It's like, crap, this is scary. How fast this is happening. Well, we didn't want to do a super size me stunt. You know, we wanted to lull our bodies into a state that most of the population either knew at one time or that knows now, something like 25 to 50% of the population habitually breathes from its mouth. So I was working with a chief of rhinology research at Stanford, and he, you know, he's a huge fan of the nose, all the wonders of the nose. And he's like, the nose doesn't get any respect. No one realizes how important it is to breathe through your nose. And I asked him, I said, well, we know that mouth breathing is, is dangerous and damaging, but how soon does that damage come on? And he said, no one knows. No one's tested it. I said, well, why don't you test it? You're here at Stanford, man. You, you've got all of the resources available. He's like, it would be unethical because he knew the damage it would cause. So I volunteered. He's like, well, I guess if you're volunteering, we can do this. And we did that for 10 days. We put silicon up our noses and calculated every imaginable marker of health the whole time. And the most stunning thing was that we went from not snoring. I think I was snoring, did baseline data before then. I was snoring a couple minutes a night, not, not a lot, to snoring within three days, about four hours through, through the night. Wow. Uh, Anders, the exact same pattern. We both got sleep apnea. Everything fell apart. Our heart rate variability plummeted. Our moods plummeted. Fatigue. I mean, everything. It was so instant and so profound. And you just don't see a lot of people when they're talking about sleep apnea and snoring, talking about the, the pathway in which you, you breathe air and, and how that might be implicated in that problem. So we thought that was pretty interesting. And you guys sounded so happy once you got the silicon plugs out and could go back to doing what you'd both spent so much time 
trying to improve, you know, breathing through your noses. For sure. Once, once we went back down to Stanford, had the stuff removed and had all that four hours of testing, it's just so awful. But once that was done and, you know, you, once you're denied something, you have a greater appreciation for it. But not only did I feel better, and that, that's important. I'm not going to dismiss that as a data point, but watching my blood pressure plummet about 10, 15 points just immediately, watching the snoring completely disappear, watching sleep apnea completely disappear, heart rate variability soar. I mean, on and on and on. And it didn't seem like this was a part of a larger conversation when people are talking about hypertension, something that affects like, what, 50% of the population. No one's talking about the way in which you breathe and how that might be affecting your blood pressure. You know, you're given a, a medicine and said, see you later, stop eating hamburgers, you know, but no one's talking about your breathing and, and your breathing is the anchor to all of these different things. Yeah. And now Stanford's taking this huge initiative in breathing, which is fantastic. Oh, great that someone will do the research. I think one of the most interesting things for me, because it links something I've, seen in some of the other work I do to what you were writing about is when you were talking about during the civil war soldiers coming in super fast breathing super fast heart rate not really breathing properly that it was like a physical sign of post-traumatic stress and that you know doctors in that period viewed the heart and diaphragm as somehow being related and yet so many of the returned soldiers from Iraq and Afghanistan I've worked with here have that same thing and of course they're trying to treat them with drugs to deal with the psychological issue, not going, hang on, change the breathing and you'll change a lot of the other stuff. Yeah. So these soldiers had this sympathetic nervous system overload. Sympathetic is the fight or flight system, cortisol, action, aggression, meanness. It, it's what's kept us alive when we are out in the wild, but having that turned on all the time, you're finally going to just burn it out and go nuts. And that's what happened to the DaCosta syndrome, civil war uh, soldiers. And that they believe is also what has happened. And one of the reasons so many soldiers in World War One, World War Two, Vietnam Wars, and they all had different names for these things because they thought they were different things. They, in World War One, they called it soldier's heart because their heart rate would be very fast. And Vietnam syndrome, PTSD now, DaCosta syndrome or irritable heart syndrome in, in the Civil War. But all of these things were closely related. And so there's one way that you can consciously take control of this autonomic nervous system. The nervous system is supposed to be on autopilot. You can't access it. That's total BS. You can access it by breathing differently. So you can turn on that sympathetic system by breathing very fast and intensely. You can also turn it off. And just what you mentioned about people when they have 12 different ailments, they're going to be treated with 12 different treatments for each of those ailments. Stephen Porges has done a bunch of research into this, and he's found that his patients who have a combination of ailments like diabetes, sleep apnea, erectile dysfunction, there's nothing wrong with any of their particular organs, but there's a problem with the connectivity of how those organs are talking and communicating with one another. So if you fix the core problem, he's found that all of those other problems will go away. And breathing can be this anchor to help rebalance people and get them back on track. It was incredible in the book when you're talking about the rate that most people breathe at. 
if yeah. I'm just moving along with a cane, my standard pattern is four steps for my breath in, six steps for my breath out. And I don't know how I got to that. I think it's something I realized that when you're using the cane and it can get scary if you find something like a manhole cover up or mm. a sign at face height, that breathing rate of four steps in, six out keeps you just calm enough that even though you get a spike for a second, you can calm it back down. But what I've always realized is I reckon I breathe probably at only half the pace of most of the people I know. You know, I'm normally around six or seven breaths a minute, which I just took to be, well, what I needed to do to use the cane effectively. And I realized I've probably taught myself something that was highly beneficial just generally without realizing it until I read your book. My father-in-law is a pulmonologist and he's been a pulmonologist for 30, 40 years. Well, well-known dude knows this stuff up here. So when he was going to school, he was told the average breathing rate per minute was eight to 12 breaths per minute. Mm. Now it is 12 to 20 and no one can really explain why, but that's what they found. The majority of people are breathing. 25,000 breaths a day, 18 times a minute. And anything below that is considered abnormal. Even though we know that if you were breathing six breaths a minute, for instance, and you put sensors all over your body, and there's been a ton of tests showing this, that you will enter a state of coherence where the burden on the heart is significantly decreased. Circulation is going to increase to your brain everything is going to work more easily at peak efficiency, which is exactly what you want the body to do. So by breathing at this quote unquote unhealthy rate, abnormal rate of six breaths a minute, you are benefiting your body and your brain exponentially. So the fact that you develop this so that you could stay focused and keep your cool in intense situations is a fantastic adaptation. I think it probably had to do a lot with your, your practice in yoga. Um, to Strangely, I had the thing with the cane first and the yoga thing gets even more interesting because part of Ashtanga yoga is you always breathe through your nose, you breathe through your mouth, you'll get told off, yeah. which is fantastic. <laughs> but the other side of it is Ashtanga is focused on really breathing slowly, but quite deeply. And the first thing I did after listening to you read your book is go screw that. I'm going to read slowly and as shallowly as humanly possible. And the first day I did it, I had to gasp a couple of times, particularly when I was you know, kicking up into handstands and things were getting a bit weird. Um, but what I've found now, what is it now, three weeks in to doing the practice with as shallow, slow breathing as I can is my recovery rate is far higher. And I know you try and explain this in the book about the importance of dealing with carbon dioxide. And I know you're right, even though I don't understand the science. By breathing shallowly, I've actually recovered faster. And I come out of intense practices, you know, with everything less sore and able to sort of move around normally much faster. Well, I think that shallow breathing, depending on how many breaths you take per, per minute, it would be interesting to get a capnometer and, and look at your CO2. Because you can be, when everyone says, oh, you just need to take a deep breath. Oh, breathe more. It's not the best advice because you could be taking those deep, fulfilling diaphragmatic breaths, but if you're breathing too much air, you're overworking your body too much and you're exhaling too much CO2. And a lot of people think that CO2 is this awful thing. For the ocean it is, for the climate it is, for sure. 
but your body needs a balance of oxygen and CO2 to function properly. And many of us um, have too little CO2 to function properly and at, at peak efficiency. And so I think what you were practicing is very similar to Buteco breathing, where his whole thing was you have to get the CO2 up. And once you get the CO2 up, you're going to increase circulation, you're going to increase recovery, and you're going to be healthier because of that. So a lot of breathing techniques, a lot of breathing schools are in these silos. Buteco says never, ever breathe deep breaths, ever. That's wrong. I think that the more tools you have in your kit, the better off you are. You can use breathing as this lever to access these different states, which is exactly what you're doing. You know, the big deep breaths of going belly, then chest, then collarbone mm-hmm. are a fantastic way to calm down really quick because everything gets moving. But then you realize you've got to the point where you've done enough of them, you feel really calm. Why would you do any more? Yep. So it really is a horses for courses thing. You need as many tools up your sleeve. So in the end of the audio book where Anders is doing all the breathing exercises, I had great fun going through one of those each day at the end of the day and just cycling through for a couple of weeks. And he's a big proponent of the less is more. And I think yeah. that that's right for most of the time. And that's where we disagree. We really have, there. there's a little chasm in our understanding and our appreciation for breathing because I have seen the benefits of these extremely intense pranayamas and these, these kriyas. Like mm-hmm. I felt them myself. I've seen the data. I've seen how they've really helped people heal themselves of a bunch mm-hmm. of different different issues. But just as you said, more tools for, for more situations. That to me is, is something that I want. I want to have all this stuff laid out so I can use it at any time. This is not mainstream at all. I mean, this information is actually, aside from your book, is incredibly difficult to come by. I trained up in, in singing and then in voiceover work and kind of default to diaphragm breathing because that's just, that's what you get taught to do as where most people kind of you know, move their chest, I guess, is that's you, you get taught to kind of um, get out of that habit. But uh, I'm still breathing quite um, regularly, as in I, will, I breathe quite a lot faster than David does. So I have more breaths per minute. But um, so, you know, I'm only halfway there in, in that sense. But then it's even more concerning to realize that you actually kind of can't habituate to something when there are multiple modes, I guess, that you, you should be running on for different circumstances. That That kind of becomes concerning because I personally found it quite difficult to train myself to breathe differently. I think you can hab- habituate yourself to healthier breathing practices. And, and that's something that really occurred to me. I don't want to be walking around with a stopwatch or a capnometer or pulse oximeter to see my, my oxygen. I don't, I want my brain to do this, but we've been so trained to breathe improperly that it's hard for our brains to do this. So it takes a while to adopt a habit, especially with breathing, it can take longer than a couple of months. But what you need to do, the real key is to increase your tolerance for carbon dioxide. And once you increase your tolerance for CO2, your body is naturally going to breathe slowly. It's going to need to breathe less. You're going to feel comfortable with that. And by having that proper balance of CO2 and oxygen, you're going to increase circulation. I mean, there's so many reasons you, you should do that. But it takes a while. And again, the key isn't to become a neurotic with your notepad. And even though that's kind of fun for a little while, it's to condition your body to do this so it does it all the time. 
And I've definitely seen that shift happen in my own body, both breathing at night, breathing while exercising. I'm just sort of tuned into to it and, and know when to turn it on and turn it off. And when you guys are talking about going for the run and you know, you're breathing in over a few steps and then breathing out over more and more steps as time goes on to build up that ability to get comfortable with carbon dioxide while doing exercise. I've been playing with that, you know, just walking around with the cane. And I think the most extreme I got to was four steps for in, 12 steps for out. Mm-hmm. And that was starting to just get to the point of being uncomfortable in that it was distracting me from using the cane properly. I was having lots of fun at one level playing the game, but the game was going to start to endanger my life just because I was going, can't breathe, can't breathe, can't breathe, can't breathe. Pay attention to Kane, David. <laughs> you don't ever want to do this so you're endangering your life. No, no, no. It needs to be no, slow. bad David. Slowly, yes. Bad David. Don't do that. But it needs to be slow and, and steady. And so many of these practices, this is something that, that I've found. A lot of people aren't talking about this stuff, but they were. And even 100 years ago, we knew about the importance of CO2. And uh, Yandel Henderson at Yale conducted oh, the duck for th- He did ducks, he did dogs, you name it. And he found, he found this out. And he's at Yale, prestigious institution. Torturing his, ducks. His, his, wow. Well, that's how it was done. I mean, don't, don't get into the horse stuff. I kept that out of the book. No, no, thank um, you. Truly awful. You got to really endure some pain for your, your art here and reading these God awful studies from the twenties was, was certainly very painful, but no one has ever denied his science. It holds up today as it held up then, but people just forget about it because the way that the institutions are built, you have to constantly be inventing your own thing. You got to publish or or perish. You can't be writing about some guy's science that he was doing a hundred years ago and, and expect that to, to make your mark. You know, you look at Buddhists, you look at Hindus, you look at ancient Chinese, you look at the Tao, they were all training themselves to breathe less at rest. I mean, Buddhists will breathe maybe two or three times a minute when they're meditating. All of these things allow them to increase that CO2 tolerance, which, which is so key in oxygenating your body. Yeah, because from what I remember you saying, it's that the more CO2 you've got in your system, the more effectively you can pull oxygen out of red blood cells. So your ability to rip it out effectively and use it goes up. That's right. Our cells are smart. They're going to find fuel no matter what, right? They're not just going to keel over and die. But what you want to do is enable them to get the most fuel the most easily and efficiently. And that's what having that balance of CO2. You know, there's some diseases like emphysema where the patients have way too much CO2, and that's bad news. I, I want to emphasize the word balance here. I don't want people to go and start holding your breath for five minutes at a time and just be, I need more CO2. No, balance people. And this is a hard thing for Westerners to, to get through our, our thick heads. Slow and steady and balance are just not two terms we appreciate or respect too much. But when it comes to breathing, that's key. And trust me, you're going to be able to go a lot further for a lot longer if you get that under control. It's a wonderful kind of image. People with small jaws going, I want to breathe more. Yeah. Well, I mean, don't go to any gym and, and I, I see joggers and this is another problem of researching breathing for so long and talking to these experts is now you start seeing people and, and I just want to tell them like, dude, 
you're not losing more weight huffing and puffing like that, you know, with your mouth open. Oxygen is necessary to burn fat. And the more you're breathing, the less oxygen is going to easily transfer into those muscles and tissues. So this is such a contrarian concept. People don't understand it. It took me months of getting my head around it. But by breathing more, you are not gaining more oxygen. You're doing just the opposite because you need that CO2 for circulation. You're going to be constricting the vessels, which is why you get tingling in your feet or in your fingers or you get lightheaded. That's not from having too much oxygen. It's from having not enough from breathing too much. Which is kind of freaky. It's like when you're describing in the book where you know, you're trying to get yourself used to breathing through your nose at night. So you put a piece of tape on your lip so you couldn't breathe through your mouth. You know, some of the things you have to do to change habits are not super pleasant. But if suddenly it's, you sleep good and no sleep apnea, then that's a wonderful thing. I was just talking to a doctor about this a couple of hours ago about this, this thing called mouth taping, which sounds so sketchy. It's like, you know, people associate it with being abducted or bondage or some other weird crap. But what this does, this is not about taking a fat piece of duct tape and slapping it across your face. This is about taking the teeniest piece of very hypoallergenic tape that has very little adhesive on it and placing a teeny bit on your lips. And the point is not to constrict air from, from your lips, from your mouth. It's to just train your jaw shut at night. Mm -hmm. And people who have done this, including me and the Stanford doctor of speech language pathology that I heard about this from, and Dr. Mark Berheny, who's been doing this for decades, it is such a massive difference to sleep with your mouth shut and only breathing through your nose. You're getting more oxygen. You're getting more nitric oxide. You're going to sleep better. You're saving 40% more moisture. I mean, I could go on and on and on. So it sounds sketchy. It sounds like some new age weirdness, but whatever it takes to be able to breathe through your nose at night, you're going to get some profound benefits from. It's like when you talk about going to visit the two dentists who have actually found the historical information about making people's jaws wider so their teeth actually fit, that that's what we should be having equipment to do. And I've got a friend who's an orthodontist, and I'd love to give her your book, but I almost don't want her to go into meltdown because it's going to be meltdown at the end of a 30-year career. This is a very contentious subject. I did my research. I talked to, I found the data, but just beyond going into the nitty gritty, just, just imagine. So we know our mouths have shrunk. There's no, no controversy about that. Our mouths are smaller than they were. That's why we have crooked teeth. So what happens, just for instance, if you have this mouth that's too small to accommodate its teeth, so its teeth are crooked, what would happen when you start extracting teeth and craning those original teeth that are still there into that smaller space. You're going to be making a small mouth smaller and you're gonna be affecting your ability to breathe because you're gonna have a smaller airway. So just the basic principles of that make perfect sense to me. And there are you know, 120 different studies looking at headgear specifically. Think about what headgear does. You put it on your front teeth and it cranes your teeth back in your mouth. And I can talk about this because I had braces, I had extractions, I had headgear. 
And so that there is this sea change happening in orthodontics right now where they're finding if you have crooked teeth, instead of making a small mouth smaller, why not expand the mouth to make it larger to allow those teeth to naturally grow and straight. And when you're doing that, you're going to open up the airways. And we know that that's what happens. You expand the mouth, you expand the airways. So this was something that I found utterly shocking to know that there is this history of it. Again, it's contentious. I would say, anyone, go do your own research. I did mine. There's 550 studies available on my website for free for anyone that wants to look at it. But it seems pretty obvious what has been happening in our culture for the past 60, 70 years of these kind of orthodontic treatments. One other thing I'll mention real quick that I found fascinating, the first functional orthodontics expanded mouths. Okay, they weren't extracting teeth. And this was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. They were expanding mouths, but that was really hard to do. And you had to take care of each person individually. When you're just doing braces, doing headgear, it's production line, right? You're, you're it's industrialization just, it, again. Exactly. Production yeah. line, straight teeth. Your teeth are going to be straight. There's no doubt about that. But some researchers, some experts who have been in this game for 30 years told me that half of the people who have orthodontics and braces will be impacted, will have a decreased ability to breathe. And these are people who have done the measurements, who have been in the, in the field of science for a long time. And that's shocking to me. And it, I think it might have affected me and my, my ability to breathe. And one of the reasons I had so many problems. Well, as you make the point in the book, you managed to grow 160 cubic millimeters of new bone in what a year from having the expander in your jaw and chewing more. Yeah. And this is, to me, I don't find this controversial again. I just want to be cognizant that, that other people might. If you are expanding your mouth, your upper palate, creating more room there, you are expanding your ability to breathe in air. So it's simple geometry to me. And I wanted to see this one guy was making these big claims. We're told we can't grow bone past 30, told impossible. Turns out that's totally false. There's one area in our body that can grow, remodel new bone. It's our faces. Because <laughs> so, we chewing four hours a day. If we hadn't been able to keep growing, our short life would have been even shorter. Absolutely right. And if you look at the human jaw and what's, what's happened to it, and if you look at these people who have had chronic sleep apnea, serious, severe sleep apnea, they expand their mouths. So I know that seems crazy to a lot of people, but it's really not. They're expanding their upper palate and they're broadening their airways and they no longer have sleep apnea because they have room in the back of their mouth. So literally right before this call, I was talking to Mark, Dr. Mark Berheny, who's done a ton of work in this area and is now working with, with Stanford. And there is, there's a change of coming in our understanding of how to straighten teeth and are out of respect for our airways. It shouldn't be one or the other. You can do both at the both. same time. Yeah. I think probably seeing we've already taken up a fair amount of you know, your time. If there was one breathing skill, you know, one breathing style that you think people should start with, where would you like people to start if they want to have a go at seeing if they can breathe differently and get positive benefits? 
First thing I would say is always breathe from your nose. And if you can't, you need to fix that. You know, an analogy that the chief rhinologist at Stanford told me, he said, if a sink is plugged in your house, you're going to find a way of fixing it as quickly as possible. The nose has to be considered the same thing. Some people do need surgical interventions for sure, but most of us think we can use what our natural bodies have and to optimize that. For instance, right now, if you have a stuffy nose, I want you to do something. I want you to calmly exhale. I want you to pinch your nostrils. I want you to hold your breath. Nod your head up and down. Nod your head back and forth. Hold your breath until you feel a potent need to breathe. Then exhale. Breathe in through your nose. Do this for about 30 seconds. And then do that whole maneuver again. There's a good chance in about five to six rounds of this, your nose will be cleared. A lot of that has to do with that carbon dioxide and that vasodilation that, that occurs. So I guess uh, I'm, I'm gonna unfairly give you two, two breathing hacks for your request for one. It is to breathe through your nose and to breathe slowly. Try to breathe at least for a few minutes a day at a rate of about six breaths per minute. That's about six seconds in, five or six seconds in, don't sweat the details, five to six seconds out, calm yourself down. Just by doing that, they found that that can have a really powerful effect for people with anxiety, depression. We know that the body loves when you breathe this way. Everything starts working in this beautiful state of synchrony. And you've got control of it. You can choose when to turn that on and turn it off. Well, uh, luckily we have the kind of social pressures already in place, I think, to try and habituate everyone into this. And you know, we've got the insult mouth breather, which has a whole new meaning now. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> maybe it was an insult for a for a reason. A reason, yeah, that's reason. right? Yeah, yeah we can uh, try and bully people into this. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll just sit there breathing at my normal rate and smirk at people until it pisses them off. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that everyone should go out and mock mouth breathing people. Well, I would gently <laughs> coax on, them into the healthy, we'll the not sensible people. healthy breathing habits. Well, I was a mouth breather through my through my youth. And I wish someone had told me in a sensitive and sensible way. So would you have listened as a teenage male? I think I would have knowing okay. I, I really would have. But I, I don't think yelling that from, you know, <laughs> the driver's seat of a car is going to do that. <laughs> Tell them to buy a copy here? of the book. <laughs> Tell them to buy a copy of the book. No, they'll understand. Don't be a mouth breather. <laughs> Read breath. <laughs> exactly. That's my really billboard. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, On that somewhat silly note, thank you, thank you, thank you for coming back and joining us again on Blind Insights, James Nestor. Thanks for having me again. Hello, listeners. If you're enjoying our podcast, please subscribe and like our Facebook page. Search for Blind Insights with David Olney. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the OzCast Network. Peace out. Peace out.